Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 4 of the UK's first Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. I'm here to guide you through the latest decisions from the Information Commissioner and the Information Tribunal. We have a packed programme for you this month. We will be covering the latest Freedom of Information developments over the last two months, including news about the government's Freedom of Information fees consultation, access to commercially sensitive information, the vexed question of access to dead people's information, MPs' expenses claims, access to lists of addresses of council properties, and finally, whether information about David Beckham can be released. We also have comment and analysis from Martin Rosenbaum of the BBC and Elaine Fletcher of Evershed Solicitors. Let's start off with our regular discussion about the government's proposals to change the Freedom of Information fees regime. In the October episode of this podcast, Maurice Frankel of the Campaign for Freedom of Information gave us his thoughts. It now seems that the government may delay the implementation of the new regime. It previously indicated that the Freedom of Information and Data Protection regulations would be laid before Parliament on the 19th of March, just 11 days after the end of the public consultation period. According to the Press Gazette, the Parliamentary Under-Secretary of State for Constitutional Affairs, Baroness Ashton, gave an assurance that the new rules would not be rushed through. The precise date for implementation has not yet been announced. It seems that the new proposals will hit journalists the hardest. Martin Rosenbaum is a journalist at the BBC and editor of the excellent Open Secrets blog. He joins me on the line to give his perspective. Hello Martin, thank you for joining us. For the benefit of listeners who haven't had a chance to read the consultation paper, would you please briefly summarise the main points? Well, there are two main aspects to the government's proposals, one of which would be to allow public authorities to take into account uh, more factors when they're assessing whether or not a request is going to be too time-consuming or expensive for Mm -hmm. them to answer. And under these proposals, they would be allowed to also take into account the time they spend considering and consulting others on the use of exemptions. And that means that a lot more requests will be pushed into the category of being too time-consuming and too expensive to answer. Uh, The other proposal will allow them, when it's reasonable, to put together requests made by one organisation, even if they're on completely unrelated subjects, and then assess whether or not they're over the time limit and therefore the the cost limit. And that, again, will mean that in the case of certainly of an organisation like the BBC, Mm. a lot of our requests will be judged to be too expensive uh, for them to answer. So what impact will these proposals have on journalists, and in particular the BBC? These proposals will, as they currently stand, definitely have an adverse impact on BBC journalism and also on the journalism of other media organisations which have made a lot of use of FOI. It means that a, a lot of the sort of requests that we are particularly interested in, which tend to be the more newsworthy issues, the more sensitive issues, the ones that require public authorities to spend more consideration and consultation time, those are the kind of requests which are particularly likely to go over the new proposed time and cost limits and therefore not to be answered. And also media organisations like ourselves you know, will now find ourselves in the position when perhaps we're able to put one or two requests to any particular public authority every three months 
so that if one BBC journalist puts a request to the Home Office, say, no other BBC journalist will be able to put any FOI request to the Home Office for the rest of that three-month period, and that it will seriously curtail the use of FOI by BBC journalists. Could the new proposals lead to journalists using pseudonyms when making freedom of information requests? I'm absolutely sure that that will happen. That some journalists will start using pseudonyms, and or perhaps just uh, making requests uh, with the help of friends or relatives. So not inventing a name, but instead just asking somebody else to put the request in on their behalf, so that the public authority can't say. That this request comes from that organisation and therefore counts towards that organisation's limit,、uh, and I think that's just going to end up diverting a lot of public authorities into wasting time、mm. considering whether, well, is this request from this organisation or not, which is a pretty unproductive、uh, thing for authorities to be spending their time thinking about rather than actually answering the question. Finally, Martin. Are you happy with the deadline for the consultation responses? I think it's towards the sort of minimum acceptable for a、uh, consultation period. But what concerns me much more about the nature of the consultation is the narrowness of it and the way that the questions are phrased.、Mm. And all that the Department for Constitutional Affairs is asking for in the consultation is detailed comments about the particular way that these proposals could be implemented. Whereas what I think the consultation should also be about is about the merits of these proposals as such, whether it's in principle right to introduce these kind of changes, not just the detailed way in which it could be done. And that I think is the is the really important. Martin Rosenbaum, thank you very much for your time. You can read Martin's Freedom of Information blog at www.bbc.co.uk/blogs/openSecrets. Let's move on to decisions made by the Information Tribunal in December 2006, of which there have been three. I'm going to focus on the decision involving Derry City Council, dated 11th of December 2006. This was an appeal by Derry City Council from the decision of the Information Commissioner, dated the 21st of February 2006. The complainant requested details about Derry City Airport's agreement with Ryanair for the use of its airport, as well as how much Ryanair paid to Derry City Council for the use of its airport facilities. The council refused to disclose the information, citing the following exemptions: Section 29, the economy; Section 41. Breach of confidence and Section 43, commercial interests. The Information Commissioner, with regard to Section 41, said that it was not engaged because the information had not been received from another party. The Tribunal upheld the decision of the Information Commissioner, and it made a number of very useful points about Section 43 and Section 41. It also went to great lengths to examine the public interest arguments in such cases. With me now to discuss this decision is Elaine Fletcher, a senior associate at Evershed Solicitors. Elaine, thank you for joining us. What do you believe are the key learning points in this decision?、Um, well, I think the、um, decision gives us some very useful、um, guidance、um, in terms of how we deal with、um, requests of these types. In particular, it reinforces、uh, what was the widely held view that the timing of the request is, is highly relevant. Whether certain exemptions.
communications can be claimed and in particular confidentiality and commercial sensitivity exemptions. Uh-huh. Um, I think it also establishes the general principle that the confidentiality exemption won't cover um, concluded contracts. Uh-huh. Um, I also think that um, it reinforces that it's perhaps a dangerous approach to merely um, define or mark something um, as confidential and then to just sit back and assume that automatically the confidentiality exemption will apply. I think it also helps us understand what is meant by information that's obtained by a public authority, um, Mm -hmm. that being very relevant um, when the public authority is looking at the confidentiality exemption. Um, And then finally, a very important point to to arise from from this um, decision is that it was widely thought that the public interest withholding information in the case of confidentiality um, was less demanding than the public interest test in freedom of information. And I think we we now have to accept that that's not necessarily the case. Can the private sector now say goodbye to confidentiality when dealing with the public sector? I think they have to be more realistic about what information confidentiality clauses uh, will actually um, protect in terms of um, disclosure under freedom of information requests. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we will generally um, now see a massive move towards removing um, confidentiality clauses that we might have had other, um, before the, um, the Derry decision. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really just being much more realistic about exactly what that will, what, what that will cover. Um, some inf- information will, it may still have the necessary quality of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is very much a timing issue because at the time of the request or the determination of whether it's disposable under freedom of information, mm. that, that will really uh, often heavily impact on whether there is the quality of confidence, whether there is an overriding public interest um, in either withholding or disclosing the information. The tribunal dismisses the applicability of the Section 41 breach of confidence exemption. Do you feel that that's the end of Section 41 as far as public sector contracts are concerned? Not necessarily. Um, I I do think we have to be more realistic about when this exemption will apply. I don't think it necessarily means the end of it. Um, In in terms of um, whether something is obtained from a third party by a public authority, um, the tribunal decision does give us some very useful guidance um, and there it said that heads of um, heads of agreement that were contained in a fax sent by um, Ryanair to Derry City Council uh, was not information received by the council mm. um, and that really is quite an important point because very often there, w- there will be in dealings with um, with the private sector or contractors and the like, um, there will be lots of information that could well, uh, by analogy, uh, be regarded as information that's not obtained from a a third party. Mm. I think that should also be be qualified, though, to the extent that very often heads of terms of an agreement or an agreement itself may contain other information. Um, So it won't necessarily just be the the, the heads of agreement. There may be some technical information in there, for example, um, and that technical information may well still enjoy confidentiality and, and, and possibly meet the requirements of the confidentiality exemption. Finally, Elaine, how would you advise public sector lawyers when drafting contracts and dealing with such requests? The important thing there is to be realistic and to to 
try and give some detailed thought to whether this is actually confidential information, um, not to automatically assume that information um, should be withheld when a freedom of information request is made merely because the contract says that it's um, confidential or because somebody has marked a document as being confidential. I think, however, that has to be balanced against um, not automatically um, disclosing um, a, a contract, a concluded contract in its entirety. And mm. um, I mentioned earlier that that was a general principle to be drawn um, from the tribunal decision that um, a concluded contract will generally be um, disclosable and will not be um, confidential. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, there may be technical information in there, there may be some other information that is um, that is confidential and therefore not to just say, well, this contract is concluded, I'm going to just um, disclose it in its entirety. It really comes down to doing a very careful assessment on the particular facts, look at each case on a, a, a case-by-case basis. Um, the timing will be very important, the nature of the information will be very important, and the how significant the, the, the public issue uh, that's in question and that underlies the request how important is that? How much of a of a public interest issue is it? Is it is it something of, of significance? Mm. Is it some um, you know some some minor um, issue that doesn't really um, doesn't really serve a strong public interest? Yes. So all of those things will need to be looked at on a case by case basis. Elaine Fletcher, thank you very much for your time. There are two articles on my website which discuss freedom of information and access to commercial information. See www.informationlaw.org.uk. I'm also running a Freedom of Information and Commercial Confidentiality workshop in London. I'll be looking at how to deal with such requests in the light of the latest decisions from the Information Commissioner and the Information Tribunal. For more details, see www.actnow.org.uk. Let's move on to decisions made by the Information Commissioner during the month of December 2006, of which there are 17. The most interesting decision is the one involving the BBC, decided on the 11th of December 2006. The complainant asked the BBC how much its staging of the Children in Need Charity Appeal Programme cost in 2005, how much of the money raised was spent on televising the appeal, and how much individual presenters and personalities such as Terry Wogan and Eamon Holmes were paid. The complainant also requested a list of all musical acts which were paid for their services on the night. The BBC refused the request on the grounds that it fell outside the scope of the Act. The Commissioner decided that the Act did apply as the information requested was not held for the purposes of journalism, literature or art. He also decided that the exemptions under Section 40 and Section 43 of the Act, which were claimed by the BBC, did not exempt the information from disclosure. He gave weight to the fact that these were public figures benefiting from public money and the public interest in knowing that charitable donations were being spent wisely. This is an interesting decision because of the thorough examination by the Commissioner of the BBC's arguments and also because of the detailed discussion about the need for accountability of public organisations. In episode 2 of this podcast, we discuss the issue of access to dead people's information by reference to the decision involving Epsom and St Helier NHS Trust. More guidance on this difficult issue 
has recently been published in the decision involving the National Archives dated 11th December 2006. The complainant requested information from the National Archives relating to the 1911 census, which was withheld on the basis of the exemption contained in Section 41 for breach of confidence. The Commissioner decided that the National Archives wrongly claimed Section 41 since the information requested did not have the necessary quality of confidence about it. It comprised the names of individuals, their relationships to the head of the family, age, occupation, marital status, birthplace and nationality. This was not the kind of sensitive information which was also captured in the 1911 census, such as health or infirmity. Had the latter kind of information been requested, then it would have warranted protection, even though the subjects may now be dead. This decision concludes with more general guidance about situations where Section 41 of the Act may apply to dead people's information, particularly census information. It is well worth reading, particularly the Commissioner's view, that an obligation of confidence survives the death of the subject of the information. Finally, a brief mention of the decision involving the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, dated the 4th of December 2006. This is a decision under the Environmental Information Regulations and the first regarding Regulation 12.4e, where information is exempt if it's an internal communication. It's an important decision because it concerns policy advice given to a minister by a civil servant. This is normally the kind of information that those in power are very reluctant to disclose. The complainant requested the advice given to a minister who subsequently confirmed a bylaw relating to salmon fishing on the River Tain. The Commissioner considered the arguments put forward by DEFRA, but also found that there were strong public interest arguments in favour of releasing the information. For instance, making the information public would help demystify the process by which a minister is informed of and arrives at a decision on environmental issues. It would also promote greater transparency and accountability of decision-making in government. Furthermore, the material may well be of interest to local people, especially as any change in the use of the river could affect the local economy. Let's move on to look at decisions made by the Information Tribunal during the month of January 2007. There were five in total. By far the most high profile of these was the decision by the Tribunal to allow an appeal by The Guardian and Heather Brook with regard to disclosure of the minutes of the BBC Governor's Meeting following the Hutton Report. The Tribunal ordered disclosure of the minutes and gave some useful guidance on the use of the Section 36 exemption information prejudicial to the effective conduct of public affairs. This particular appeal hinged on the BBC's claim that to publish the minutes would or would be likely to inhibit the free and frank exchange of views for the purposes of deliberation. The other tribunal decision to note involves the House of Commons' refusal to disclose a breakdown of MPs' travel claims. The tribunal upheld the Information Commissioner's decision dated the 22nd of February 2006 that disclosure would not breach the data protection principles and so the information was not exempt under Section 40. The tribunal gave its support to the Commissioner's approach when dealing with cases under Section 40. Let's move on to decisions made by the Information Commissioner during the month of January of which there were 22. Many councils have received requests for the addresses of all council properties. Many previously have withheld this information, claiming the exemptions under Section 38, Health and Safety, and Section 40, Personal Information. 
In the light of recent decisions made by the Information Commissioner, it'll be very difficult to claim these exemptions in the future. In a decision involving Braintree District Council, information with regard to council properties was withheld on the grounds of Section 40 that it would breach one of the data protection principles. The Commissioner disagreed with this approach, although he accepted that there would be unfairness to individuals if they were publicly identified as members of a vulnerable group, for example asylum seekers or benefit recipients, he did not consider that there would be any general unfairness to individuals in being identified as merely council tenants. In taking this view, the Commissioner was mindful of the low inherent sensitivity of the data and that in practice the fact that a particular property is or is not owned by the council will be generally known. However, the Commissioner was willing to accept that there may be particular properties which are not generally known to be owned by the Council, the disclosure of the address of which might result in unfairness to some individuals. If, for instance, the Council had housed some vulnerable individuals at a secret location, and this fact could be inferred from the address, then the Commissioner would accept that the information could be withheld. This decision is similar to the one involving Mid-Devon District Council, which was decided on the 4th of May 2006. Salaries and expenses continue to be a big target for freedom of information requests. The latest decision on this issue involves Doncaster Metropolitan Borough Council, dated the 22nd of January 2007. The complainant sought the names of those who had repaid money to the council following excessive expenses claims, as well as details of the amount each individual had repaid. Amongst other things, the council argued that the information was exempt under Section 40. The Information Commissioner partly disagreed with this approach. He decided that it would be fair to release the names and details of repayments ordered to be made as a result of criminal convictions, but the names of those who had made voluntary repayments and the amounts involved was exempt under Section 40. With the ongoing debate about public sector pensions, it's not surprising that many councils who administer the local government pension scheme have received information access requests. In September 2006, the Commissioner ruled Wolverhampton City Council had to disclose information on the investments made by it in its role as the administrator of the West Midlands Pension Fund. The Council had refused to supply some of the information on the basis that it was subject to a confidentiality agreement between itself and various investment organisations and that a disclosure would be likely to prejudice the commercial interests of some of the parties involved. The Commissioner ruled that the public interest in knowing that public funds are being invested wisely overrides the public interest in protecting confidentiality in this case. He also noted that the requested information would have to be much more detailed for disclosure to prejudice the commercial interests of any party. A recent decision involving Hertfordshire County Council, dated the 1st of February 2007, followed the same reasoning. Interestingly here, the Commissioner considered the fact that in previous common law cases involving confidentiality, the House of Lords has indicated that the reason for seeking disclosure may be relevant to the decision as to whether a duty of confidence should or should not apply. This seems to be a further exception to the general rule that the Freedom of Information Act is applicant blind. On the 10th of January 2007, the Commissioner ordered Liverpool City Council to release documents relating to managed zones for prostitution. Although the Council disclosed some information, it refused to disclose all documents on the grounds that it may inhibit free and frank provision of advice under Section 36 and would be likely to prejudice commercial interests, Section 43. 
In his decision, the commissioner ruled that the council had incorrectly applied the exemptions and failed to properly consider the public interest test. In what will serve as a warning to all local authorities, the commissioner found the council's response to his inquiries was seriously deficient throughout the course of his investigation. He has now referred the case to his good practice and enforcement team. In December, Liverpool Council was prosecuted and fined for failing to comply with an information notice served by the Commissioner under the Data Protection Act. Finally, in the month that the Beckhams announced that they were going to live in America, do I hear a loud cheer? The Commissioner ruled that the National Portrait Gallery should have disclosed information about how much it had paid to an artist commissioned to make a video portrait of David Beckham. The Commissioner decided that Section 43 did not apply because the prejudice to the commercial interests of the gallery was insufficient to engage the exemption. And even if the exemption had been engaged, the public interest in maintaining the exemption did not outweigh the public interest in disclosure. That's all the decisions we have time for this month. ACNOW Training runs a workshop series throughout the UK where these decisions are discussed in detail. Full details at www.actnow.org.uk that concludes this month's podcast. This podcast was brought to you by me, Ibrahim Hassan. I specialize in all aspects of information rights law, particularly data protection, freedom of information, and surveillance law. My clients include local authorities, the NHS, and government agencies. If you'd like specific advice on any of your information law issues, please do not hesitate to contact me. Please continue to let me have your feedback. This is the only podcast of its kind in the UK. If you'd like a copy of this month's script, please contact me via my website www.informationlaw.org.uk Until the next time, goodbye.